How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like the church is trying to hold The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to give answers, but they don't even know the questions we're asking. The church is the most vocal political voice against immigrants. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good when the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the culture is How is that actually? It seems like so much of the church is concerned with being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. The church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today our guest is Dr. Monica A. Coleman. And Monica is professor of Africana Studies at the University of Delaware. She spent over 10 years in graduate theological education at Claremont School of Theology and Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Answering her call to ministry at age 19, Dr. Coleman brings her experiences in evangelical Christianity, Black church traditions, global ecumenical work, and indigenous spirituality to her discussions of religion. Dr. Coleman is the author or editor of six books and several articles that focus on the role of faith in addressing critical social and philosophical issues. Her memoir, Bipolar Faith, shares her lifelong dance with trauma and depression and how she discovers a new and liberating vision of God. Her book, Making a Way Out of No Way, is required reading at leading theological schools around the country. Dr. Coleman speaks widely on navigating change, religious diversity, mental wellness, and surviving sexual and domestic violence. Dr. Coleman, first of all, that is an amazing way to start. That gets people excited about not just what you're going to say, but where you're saying it from and why your perspective is so unique and powerful. But I just want to begin. Thank you so much for being with me and with us and with the listeners today. Thank you for inviting me. And this is a little different. Before we get into any questions, I actually have a greeting for you from a mutual friend of ours. So Ralph Watkins wanted me to tell you that him and Vanessa say hello before I started the podcast. I love them. They are so wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. So well, we at school, people would refer to him as Doc. So Doc was a friend and a mentor. I was at Fuller for like three years, about 10 years ago. And I was doing like all directed studies on black and womanist theology with him and he signed on to be my PhD advisor. And then this, like, right before it was going to happen, he left the school. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so he couldn't take on any new projects because I technically didn't begin. So he was the catalyst for a massive disruption in my life at that point. And yet it did kind of open the doors for me to come back to Hawaii. So in the end, I'm grateful for him doing that, actually. Uh, yeah, it's tough when you're when your professor moves, but it was a great move for him. And he is such a great scholar, a great teacher, good person. Yeah, he's pretty classic. He was he was probably like two or three guests ago on here. He was one of the last people I had on here. Yeah, even to begin with, you know, the title, the church of the podcast, the church needs therapy. I never began with that simple question. But let me ask you a question. Does the church need therapy? Well, I think we all need therapy. <laughs> like if you can get it, grab it. If you're over age mm. 10, right? Um, mm. Just because life is hard, mm. you know, and parents aren't perfect. <laughs> and society can throw all types of challenges your way. Some of it's, you know, structural oppression. Some of it's dumb luck, right? Mm. And so I think everybody could use therapy if you can get your grimy hands on it, right? Yeah. In whatever way you can. Yeah. So, but the idea that an institution or that a community needs therapy, I think is also true. Um, because even as communities and churches are communities, right? We have collective experiences of trauma, of difficulty. Um, sometimes we've got really great rituals we use to process that. Right now, we can't even access a lot of what we have in our faith traditions that helps to maintain us and keep us sane. And so, yes, I do think the church needs therapy too. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, when I was in grad school, like I said, working with Doc, like real closely for three years, it was this interesting and exciting time in my life where I was so immersed in black and womanist theology, like during that time. And, and that's funny now, like that was 10 years ago, I'm 36 to look back. I'm like now as a straight cisgender white male pastor, you know, lead co-founder leading this church that my wife and I started together out here in Honolulu. It's funny for me to look back and know that the voices that continue to speak through me today are, you know, the cones, the Will Coleman's and Cornell West and Kelly Brown Douglas and Renita. Kelly Brown Douglas was for me was like the ultimate. Like she was, I'm gonna get her on here one day. Her people rejecting me, but they're gonna keep they're gonna keep hearing from me just like Mitchell kept hearing from me. But or or Katie Cannon or whoever it is. And I look back, I'm like, man, these voices not only shaped me profoundly at the time, but like they do continue to reverberate through me and speak through me today. And I say that to say, you know, if you could speak to us and to the people who might not be as familiar with womanist thought or what womanist theology is, you know, what is womanist theology and why is it so powerful? You know, what, what unique contribution does it bring, not just to the, not just to black women, but to the church as a whole? Well, what you say just warms my heart, right? As a, <laughs> as a theologian, to know that the things that we are teaching are meaningful to people who are religious leaders. I mean, that's kind of what we're shooting for. So that yeah, just makes me so happy yeah, to hear, even yeah. though I wasn't your teacher. That wasn't on um, purpose. I wasn't trying to win her over, I promise. <laughs> um, and, you know, and to name, you know, my mentors and my friends mm. are, is great to hear. And so I came to Womanist Theology as really some of the first theology I ever read. Mm. So I didn't mm. read it as being something that was separate or distinct from any other way of thinking about God. It was some of the first mm. academic theology I read when I was in college. And so I would, the kind of quick definition of Womanist Theology is the religious reflection on the spiritual and religious lives of women of African descent, right, of Black women. And that's just, which is really broad, right? <laughs> because right. we're all types yeah. of religious expressions. Um, black means different things in different parts of the world. Woman means different things in different mm. contexts. Um, but all of that, you know, is that we're a kind of liberation theology, which mm. means that we start with the experiences of black women, with those religious experiences and say, how do, what do we know about God <laughs> based on that? What does this tell us about our faith? What does this tell us about the things we believe? What does this tell us about how we have acted in the world and how we should act in the world? What do we learn from this? And from the way I do womanist theology is it starts with the experiences of Black women, but I don't think that the, the lessons we learn are true only for Black women, mm. right? That they are lessons that are helpful for all communities in part to understand Black women, but also to learn from some of the same knowledge, which you might say is distinctive or particularized, that comes from Black women's experiences. Mm -hmm. So some of the main tenets of womanist theology, as it has been done thus far, are about saying salvation is important. We're less concerned about heaven. We're more concerned about what happens here on earth. Right. So we call that realized eschatology in our fancy theological language. Mm -hmm. And we want freedom. We want liberation. But we also understand that survival is important. And mm -hmm. once we're free, we also understand that quality of life is important. Right. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the big things. And we're always interested in a telos of justice, of survival, of freedom, of quality of life. And I think those things are true no matter which woman is theologian you encounter. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's so good. So that's like a whole semester class. There you go. It's two minutes. What is womanist thought right there? But it, you know what's so good and like reading your work and, you know, seeing you speak in different places, you know, there's the particular, there's the universal, there's the concrete moment, and then there's sort of the cosmic map. And what's fascinating in life is you kind of cascade between those two, right? The particular opens us up to the universe. The universal helps us land right back into the concrete. And that's something I'm always kind of naturally paying attention to. And if we think about that, how does 
the experience of black women, say specifically in the United States of America, as they reflect on their relationship with God, as they've reflected on their relationship with the world and each other, how does that experience give us insights into the depths and dimensions of Christ in our world? So how does that offering that comes out of that experience shape someone like me, shape a rural white pastor in the middle of the United States of America, people who aren't black women, but how does that, how does their experience give us those insights to sort of enlarge all of our visions of God and of Jesus? Well, this is something I really love to talk about. <laughs> so thank you for asking. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think when it comes to Jesus and Christ in particular, some of the things one of theologians have said could be great perspectives for everyone. So you'll see more of an emphasis on Jesus than you will Christ, more language mm. of Jesus and Christ. So more emphasis on what you might call the, the human experiences that Jesus has than the divine experiences, right? Uh, it's a kind of hard dichotomy to draw, of course, mm. um, but really looking at, well, what was Jesus like? Really kind of an emphasis on the synoptic gospels, right? Matthew, mm. Mark, and Luke. And looking at how Jesus sides with the oppressed, looking at how Jesus spoke up for women, looking at how Jesus mm. incorporated women into his ministry, right? Um, really reading sometimes against the grain, right? Even if you look at kind of Mary Magdalene, right? Uh, and this kind of popular notion of who she was, or was she just someone who society talked bad about and didn't understand? And Jesus was like, hey, let's, I don't see why you can't be part of my ministry, right? So these are, you know, some of the insights we get. Um, thinking about the importance of how Jesus says, I call you friends. I don't call you servants, wow. right? Because you might say, well, servant language has been really hard on Black women. Yeah, and do we want to relate to God as servants? That is what some theologies would do. Well, we'll say, no, what does it mean to think of ourselves as friends of God, mm. as disciples and focusing on what it means to teach and to be taught, to learn, right? That there's maybe, what if we thought of this as a learning community? rather than uh, an authoritative, I'm in charge and I'll tell you what to do community, right? These are some insights. Um, thinking about how salvation works, and this is not agreed upon with, among womanist theologians, sure, but yeah. there are womanist theologians who are so much more interested, this is my perspective and Dolores Williams, um, in thinking of what Jesus teaches us and how that is what saves us, what Jesus shows mm -hmm. us, Jesus' actions, mm -hmm. the ministry we see, and that's what saves us. And that is just as, if not more important than what happens on the cross. Mm. Right? So I think these are really great ways that everyone can hold on to, to say, well, how does my faith change if I'm paying attention to the teachings of Jesus, if I'm modeling Jesus' actions of inclusion, right? If I'm thinking of my relationship to God as that of a student or that of a friend more than that of, you know, a master or a king. Mm. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Even, even just to begin. That's so good. You know, the last guest I had on here was Brian McLaren and I mentioned, did, was he, was he ever like, did he work or do stuff at Claremont? When you uh, he did some uh, work at Claremont. Like he came and did a lot of lectures and stuff. And so I know Brian, I like him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, I don't know if he was, I thought he may be on a board or something, but I knew I've, I've seen him do stuff there before when I was in school. And I mentioned this briefly to him, but I can look back at my time when I was first sort of, you know, reading more and more liberation theology. And one of my favorite books to this day, and at that time I just loved and still to this day is Kelly Brown Douglas's The Black Christ. Small book. When I got down, like, this is it. Like, I just love that book. I still return to it to this day. I mean, and there's things there that not only have, will always be a part of constructing, you know, my sort of theology, like, evolving and fluid theological imagination, but even pastoring, even locally, what we do concretely, what it looks like to be present in this neighborhood, what it looks like to be the church in the neighborhood where we are. And in that book, when I think about the concreteness of even how it shapes the pastoring part of in this neighborhood, she talks about the creeds in that book. And at that point, it was so eye-opening because I had one professor who's, you know, he's given me the great tradition and the creeds and the history. I'm like, this is great stuff. You know, I like to see that you're a part of a global historical body of Christ. There's so much power, dignity, and, you know, that's, it's amazing and it's true. 
But when she looked at the creeds, you know, one of the main critiques she had, which I just love and I still to this day, it's always with me is she's like the creeds are primarily metaphysical, right? They're beliefs we have sort of abstract beliefs about who Jesus was, the nature of God, et cetera. And when she's like, when it's just these metaphysical beliefs that has nothing to say about the Jesus of the gospels, like womanist theologians love to continue to call us back to, she's like, you can, you, you can believe all of those things in the creed and still be totally comfortable upholding a white Christ, upholding a slaveholding Christianity, upholding systems of injustice, because those cognitively in your mind don't conflict. There really is no direct con conflict for people there. And then what she does is talk about the Jesus in the gospels is the one who always identifies with the marginalized and shows solidarity with the oppressed. Like you cannot follow Jesus without having those two things at the center of what it looks like to be faithful. So can you just, and that always stays with me when I think about the neighborhood, I'm always like, wherever you are, what does it look like to identify with the marginalized? How do you begin with solidarity? So that's sort of like some of the stuff I go back to. Can you speak into any of that right now? Cause that's just the stuff that always has stayed with me for her the most like directly. Yeah. Great. Um, it's all great stuff. Right? I love thinking about the creeds. Um, I, I love Kelly's work, of course. And she's right in terms of this is where all liberation theologians are coming from, right? Whether you're feminist theologian, disability theologians, womanist theologians, right? That we're starting with um, the experiences and the, and the, which really is in some ways a radical notion, right? That Jesus, right, and in Jesus as a representative of God, cares about the marginalized experiences, cares about those who some might say are the least of these, right, to use kind of our King James Version language in the Bible, cares about those who are oppressed, cares about those who don't have the things that they should have, right? And so um, I'm right there with you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I think the thing is, you know, um, let me know if it's a tangent. I, I, I thought it was, I, I had forgotten about that part of the Black Christ. And I'm thinking about, well, of course, Kelly would talk about creeds. She's Episcopalian. And so yeah, she really yeah. got something to say about, hey, how are we valuing these creeds? Um, and, you know, as someone who's a process theologian, too, and so I care about metaphysics. The other challenge with the creeds are that they operate off a metaphysic we no longer have. Mm, right. So they spent a lot of time trying to figure out how somebody could be human and divine at the same time, because they had a very static understanding of how humanity in the world works. Remember, they thought the world was flat. Right. And they thought that up was heaven and down was fire. Yeah, and so yeah. we have a very different understanding of how the world works and a more dynamic understanding of how energy happens. And so it's not so difficult for us to think, well, of course, you could be human and godly. We are human and godly. Right. Mm. We are divinely created and humanly created. And mm. it's not like you kind of portion it off and say, look, right, here's 50%, right, right. no, here's 20%. Right? Yeah. We know it doesn't quite work like that. So these aren't blockages for us. Mm. Um, and the creeds were also formed by kind of political fiats and councils, right? And so it was a little bit about theology and a lot about power and a lot about politics. And that doesn't tell you what people believe, <laughs> if that belief is good or bad, or why there's only one belief that we can have. And so I really love the way liberation theologians have also come to critique um, creeds, as well as some of the background of how our creeds came to be, which isn't to say there isn't any value in creeds. Totally, absolutely. But why couldn't we write creeds now? <laughs> why couldn't we create church, each church create a creed, right? To say, given what we know about the world, given what we know about Jesus, this is a statement of belief we hold to. Yeah, yeah, it's when you along the way, when you're gifted enough or have the resources to have some sort of, you know, uh, formal theological education. And I think when you just learn the human nature of like, that was just a bunch of guys in a, in an actual real moment reacting to their act, to their social, political, blah, blah, blah context. You're like, 
it, it, it doesn't negate the value of anything, but it, it definitely humanizes the whole thing and it demystifies the like, this is all magic and it's been etched into the universe, you know, from the Big Bang. You're like, well, this is actually a real life unfolding thing in the church. And it's kind of both disturbing when you first see it, but also extremely liberating when you when it opens up all the possibilities for who we are and what we're doing today. I found it liberating because when I first learned this also, right, in divinity school, I was like, so there's nothing that says I have to believe X, X way, right? And that there have always been a variety of ways to think about Jesus. So the early community knew Jesus was important. How and why? Nobody agreed about. <laughs> right, about right. You know, five really good ideas out there. Um, but they said something important is happening here and we need to draw attention to it and we want to celebrate it and we want to form community around it. And I was like, people need to know. Right? People need to know <laughs> that there's not just one way, that there are all these different ways there always have been. And so there still can be. And we can choose the way that we think is the best for us today. And we would argue as liberation theologians, right? That way is gonna be the one that produces the most justice, the most freedom, the highest quality of life for as many people as possible. Mm, yeah. Oh yeah, it's so good. You know, when you, if you think about therapy, like my wife's a therapist, you know, my wife has her own practice. She's a great therapist. She's amazing. And whether it's a therapist or a great friend or oftentimes a spouse, it could come from any direction to receive the revealing of truth or the telling of truth from somebody else, right? The, the, the other always tells the truth on the same. You know, we need the eyes of the other to help see ourselves with more clarity sometimes because whether we realize it or not, we're all invested in some degree in like not seeing because seeing's hard, right? Seeing the truth can be hard for an individual, family system, community, broaden out as far as you go. And sometimes when people speak a truth, it can be obviously rejected, but it, if it's received, it can be uncomfortable at first. It disturbs us. It disrupts our system, our management system. It disrupts all the ways we've done things. With that said, if you look at white churches or the white church even though we know there's a million different expressions there's no like what's the future of the church you're like you mean like the egyptian coptic church you mean like you know ame churches or white it's like it's it's obviously very diverse but when you look at white sort of your dominant culture evangelical churches the ones that get the most airplay on news stations and seem to create a very large raucous all the time what uncomfortable perhaps disruptive but as as you believe and i do too a liberating truth does the woman does does do you do you as a womanist theologian i won't you won't have to speak for all womanist theologians what uncomfortable truth do you speak to that version of the church today that might be disruptive for them but ultimately you would see as liberating them for more of the fullness of christ Oh, that's a great question. Um, and I think there are many of us kind of doing this at different angles, you might mm -hmm. say. I think the one that I probably do the most and feel the most passionate about, um, maybe there are two, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. One is talking about how we relate to God and how we understand God, mm -hmm. right? Not God in a authoritative or hierarchical way. Um, where we're asking or begging God <laughs> to do things and hoping that if we do, then God will give us good things, mm. right? But more of a symbiotic relationship with God, mm. right? Where our experiences affect God and God affects who we are and God is calling us and God is like, hey, you don't have to do it. Hope you do, as I'm calling you. Yeah, if you yeah. don't, I'm still here, right? And that's, that can be a really radical way of thinking about change, I think, and thinking about how we understand God. Um, that God changes us, but also that we change God, right? And mm -hmm. um, that God does not cause bad things to happen to us necessarily mm -hmm. or punish us for being imperfect, right? Mm -hmm. um, but rather God leads with grace and always um, is always there for us and with us, no matter what our experiences are, always calling us and hoping for us to become not just the best who we can be for ourselves, but the best that our community can be and to help us to create the most beauty and justice in the world around us. So I don't know that it's a radical belief, but it is a very different idea, 
than I think a dominant view of God as king, right? Or God as master or God as Lord, right? And God has a big will for our lives and we are praying to fit into it. So I think that is one way <laughs> that I yeah, disruptive so um, to those beliefs that is grounded in both my positionality as a process theologian and as a womanist theologian. Mm. Um, so I think that would probably be one of the major ways yeah, I push yeah. back and that God's vision is a vision of justice, right? Which is very much a liberation one. So it's not just, oh, so that we can live out our best lives, which I'm all about too, right? But also that it's the best lives for our communities, which means that it might be uncomfortable for some parts of our communities, right? Yeah. Um, that some may have to give so that more can have. Mm. And that this is the vision for justice and for inclusivity uh, that's important to all of us, right? So if God is concerned about justice, God is not sitting around worried about, you know, who has sex before marriage. He's <laughs> not sitting around, <laughs> right, worrying about who loves whom and what configuration, right? Mm. Isn't sitting around worried about, you know, how I can give the most money and things to people who already have a lot of money and things. Right. So they're, they're very different concerns that come out. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I think one of the challenging things, even thinking about this interview, doing it in an hour is there's so many different things that you speak to so profoundly. So I'm like, well, church needs therapy. And I want to hear about this, but that's more just like personal. So you know, the church needs therapy. And so if that's a challenge, mm -hmm. I'm like, I want people to hear from around this, but also this. But with that said, I do want to, I want to transition a bit because, you know, your, your most recent book, you know, your, what you call like a, what is, I've heard you refer to as like a memoir of madness. Is that right? In that Yeah, like a spiritual autobiography meets a memoir of madness. Yeah, it's so good. Bipolar faith. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about, you, when we talk about the church needs therapy, some of the church's growth, evolution, struggle with embracing how to move forward when we in integrate mental health and spirituality and faith as a whole. And I want to tell you a little story before I do that. Like in the neighborhood where we are, are this neighborhood we're in is called Kakako. I'm right outside. You can see those buildings. Like that's downtown Honolulu over there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really wish there was a massive rain. I'm on the 37th floor of our building. There was a huge rainbow outside the window right before we called. I was hoping it would have stayed because I would have turned it. It might come back though. So I'm, I'm going to pause if it does, but our church is in this neighborhood, like arts district. We just like maybe, but right before COVID we moved into a new spot here. Great place. Like, you know, young, like amazing community. And we were doing, it was like a question series on teaching. And so we did this bigger thing on mental health, faith, et cetera. And in this particular teaching, you know, it's just one of those moments on a Sunday you have with your community where you're like, you're going to remember that. You know what I mean? You're like, that was a thing right there. You know, like every Sunday is great. Those rituals we have are amazing, but you're like, that was special. And because we have at the end of this time, people naming for the first time, like maybe I, maybe this is, something that's more serious for me you know maybe i do need to explore this further right it's giving them some of the language and courage in the community to start some of the naming process you might need to really extend and continue that journey and your book was a big part of that moment so in the teaching i wish i had a picture because it was like me and then everybody there and like a 25 foot picture of you right behind us. Cause it kind of projects onto this huge like wall or screen. And it was the cover of your book. And, you know, we just talked about your book and some of the quotes from there and the power of naming that you talk about, you know, and first of all, I just wanted to share that because even at that point you may have just moved to Delaware, but, you know, the work that you do, the writing, the memoir, the courage, the natural kind of way you wrote that was speaking directly into the life of our community here in Hawaii. And I just think that's such an amazing thing. You know, it I just is. wanted to share that with that's you. That's why, you know, I like to read books and write books, right? Because <laughs> yeah, books it's... have changed me. And so it's amazing when you get to write something and then it makes a difference for someone else. Yeah. And there's a couple of things from there. The first, it's just a quote from, you know, your book, Bipolar Faith. You said, what I like is that in the stories of Jesus healing people, there are other people around. See, these aren't private sessions. It's very much a communal act. 
mental health is a, is a public health issue, which is so great. But what does this idea have to say to churches in their role and their responsibility and the possibilities of leading people towards a holistic form of health in Christ? I mean, I think to me, it says that we need to talk about mental health and community, right? Like from the pulpit where there are Mm. people around, I think oftentimes in the past it's been like, well, this is a pastoral care moment, right? That happens Mm. in the office one, you know, the pastor to the person who has an issue or question or challenge. And that's fine. (laughs) But I think it's important to also talk about and break the silences we have around mental health also when we're in community, in part because community can be supportive. You don't know who's in the community. You may have therapists and social workers who can be helpful. You may have people's friends and families who want to be supportive. It takes away this stigma. And there's a particular religious stigma, right, Mm -hmm. where I've heard so many times it suggests that depression comes from the devil trying to bring you down. If you're really Mm -hmm. blessed, you're not stressed. I mean, all Mm -hmm. types of just kind of crap theology out there (laughs) that finds its way into, you know, so many faith communities. And which is, which is funny, but it's also extremely damaging. You know, I mean, you know that, you know, you write about that. It's so dangerous, like those kinds of quips and platitudes. You know? We don't act like it's somebody's fault that they have diabetes or heart disease, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We're not quiet about that. We pray for those people. We visit them in the hospital. Why mm-hmm. are we so different with people with mental health challenges? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that's an, one reason why it's important. And again, Jesus wasn't like, this is no private session, right? This is mm-hmm. something the whole community can learn from and know about and see and be supportive of. And so yeah. I think that's one reason, a very big reason, right? We learn from Jesus. This is a better way to do it. Mm, yeah, that's so good. It makes me think of some of the stories of Jesus of healing people well, prior to the healing, you know, for purity rituals or whatever, they would have been sort of cut off from their community. But after the healing, he's not just restoring their individual sense of health, wellness, but he's restoring them to the community because now they can return. Now they're sent home yeah. being able to fully participate. You know, and without the context, you don't get that as much, but I'm like, that's, it's a returning to the people as well, you know, but we don't want the community to abandon them in the first place, right? Exactly. I mean, that's what we're not, we're aiming for the second, you know, we step want to have one, community. we'll restore them. Step two, maybe not do it in the first place. Right. You, you, here's a few things I mentioned on that Sunday. And then I want to, I want to ask you this question. You know, you wrote in your book, you know, illness becomes stress, stress becomes loneliness, loneliness becomes fear. You talked about obviously the reality of how depression is a brain condition. And you talked about how the naming of bipolar two helped you feel sane, heard, grounded. Like how you talk about what the naming of the condition that you felt was true for you did for you in such a positive beginning healing you know restoring moving forward kind of way and i remember in that sermon i said you know we think oftentimes the naming is going to devastate us but it actually has the power to deliver us and what is what is when we talk about an individual's mental health journey and their mental health journey within the context of relationships relationality community as well what is the power of the naming of conditions in that journey and also if you think it's if you think it is why do you think there seems to be this unconscious fear for people to have their conditions named like what's the power of it but do you sense there's resistance towards people allowing it to be named and what might that be yes i do think it's a double-edged sword perhaps for lack of a better term i think a lot of people can feel like stereotyped or pigeonholed Mm. or like confined to the name like this is who i am now right and Mm. there's no more to me than this diagnosis and this word and it feels scary because you're like oh that means i'm really crazy right like i thought i was the problems but now they have a real official name for my crazy and that feels scary (laughs) it feels like oh no like maybe i'm never going to get better and there are some people in a medical model who are saying, well, we have no cure to be on medication the rest of your life. This is what it is. 
And those killjoys need to be left alone, right? But that is what people will say. And so I do understand how it can feel scary because mm. I did experience that it's other points in mm. my journey with therapists where they say, well, here's the name or I'd read my files and I'm like, ah, no, mm. now I have this bad thing, right? Yeah. And it's like this, this bad thing that I know is a bad thing mm. is now my bad thing. And mm, so yeah. it feel, I can see how it can feel scary. Um, I think for me by that point, I just felt like nobody understands, nobody knows, nobody knows what's going on. Like, I don't feel like I'm being treated right for such a long time. And it was like, wow, you're not alone. There are other people who have some of the same symptoms you do. There's a name for this. This is going to help doctors know how to treat me better. They'll know, don't give this medication, maybe try this medication instead. And so for me, it was like, wow, this is really helpful information. And I am not the only person that's not quite fitting in right or isn't explaining themselves well or whatever the case might be. So I saw it as a way to get better help and a way to know that I wasn't alone and isolated, even if I didn't know other people with bipolar two, which I did not at the time. <laughs> I do now, um, but I did not then. Because there are other people out there <laughs> who have some of the same experiences I have. And for me, it was hopeful because it was like, well, I can be, I'll be okay then, right? Mm -hmm. This is not, yeah. I'm not some kind of unicorn case, yeah. but the, it, it felt very hopeful to me. And it did feel yeah. like I was being delivered. And so I do think it was helpful to know. So I could also share that information with other people. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the clarity and then the immediate sense of solidarity or the solidarity you can get from the naming. And then the naming is going to happen in a community because of course you're not the only one. Of course that person that they're not the only one who's going to have their condition named is that, and that solidarity in the journey. So it's like, it's, it's just the found it's, you know, it's not everything, but it's everything, that foundation of the people with you. So, yeah, I'm so, I think that was such a powerful thing. And that, that's just something pastorally as a friend, you know, my wife is a therapist, obviously it's, you can tell there's that uncon beneath the surface of like, Oh, I'm going to make that appointment or I might do this, you know, and I'm not, I don't push anybody. It's like you say, that's how I see the spirit of God is all. It's always an invitation, never an obligation. Here's the path to wholeness. If not, that's okay. But when you're ready to do that, the spirit's so humble and, and, willing to we can we can move forward there too like that's you know kind of how i try to pastor people as well you know mm -hmm. but beneath so much of that i'm like i just i know something within them is scared of having their condition named and i get it because sometimes people talk about the thing behind the thing it's like we're arguing about this but you were really hurt about this you know and we have to spend right. 20 minutes up here to get down there everybody and in relationships we, know that argument exactly <laughs> no yeah yeah of course you're like the spoon fell and we're fighting. I think it might be more than it's this. It's not the spoon. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think oftentimes I talk about the thing after the thing. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, I, I'm for example, with what we're talking about, you have your condition named. That isn't the thing people are resisting. The resistance is I've had this thing named and that means I'm less valuable. I've had this name. That means I'm what crazy or scary or bad now or broken or unrepairable. Or, yeah, unrepairable. Yeah. And it's the thing. It's not the thing. It's what we think that thing means about who we are that it doesn't, you know, the naming of it creates all this clarity of healing, but it's what we think it says about who we are that it doesn't that I, I that I've seen experientially, is so much of the resistance and blockage for people. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm so glad when you, that section on naming, I'm like, this is just so good for people to see that. You know, you tell a story in, in that same book for people listening, Bipolar Faith, such a good book. Um, Dr. Coleman's memoir. It's amazing. And you talk, you tell a story about asking a counselor for a recommendation for a psychiatrist and how the person who responded said, well, you don't need a psychiatrist, you need Jesus, right? And we kind of already started to touch on some of those cliche-ish pattern, uh, platitude kind of glib answer type of things. And you talk about how that exchange added to the heaviness and grief you were already experiencing in your life. 
for people listening, we, we talk about a church needing therapy. We want to see the church grow. We want to see the church, you know, evolve and become more in this world. What is damaging or dangerous about that kind of a response to someone who is hurting and searching for hope and searching for health, really? Oh, so many things are damaging. Mm. You know, my response in myself, but I had, I got Jesus, but I need his help, right? Like you're mm, not mm. helping me. Um, mm. And it, it did feel very discouraging. And so sometimes it suggests that just having faith in Jesus being important for our spiritual lives is somehow going to magically take care of all of our problems, which mm. it does not. And mm. you would never say to somebody, not never, but the vast majority of people would not say to somebody, again, who presented with diabetes or who presented with heart disease or high blood pressure. Mm. You wouldn't mm. say you need Jesus. You'd be like, you need Jesus and a good doctor, right? Mm. <laughs> and yeah. Jesus is great. Let's say some prayers. Now let me get you to the hospital, mm. right? Well, it's also, <laughs> that's also why we don't need to wear a mask. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, just a little bit of like second grade science will tell us, <laughs> right, that there are occasions when you need, you know, the trained professionals, to and their expertise and their knowledge and their wisdom and their resources to help you. Um, I think it also suggests, and this is the part that really bothers me, that one has mental health problems because your faith isn't strong enough. And that is really yeah, the so belief good. I think was mm. there. Was like, you know, if you had Jesus, if you had a good faith, if you were praying the right way, if you were going to church the way you should, if you were tithing the way you should, you wouldn't be depressed. Mm. No, that's not how it works. But that really is the message. And it's if you hear it over and over and over again, as so many people mm. do, that's what you'll believe. And if no one mm. is telling you anything different, that's what you'll believe. And that's a lie. You know, I was like, a lie from the pit of hell. I don't even believe in hell, right? But it is, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is it is the worst thing you can tell someone, right? And to suggest, right, that there's this formula to our faith lives, right? Where if we pray, say, do, tithe, worship in right ways, everything's going to line up in a circle and our lives will be perfect. Mm -hmm. And if your life is not perfect, it's because something is wrong with your faith, mm -hmm. right? That is the kind of theology that I will devote the rest of my life to mm -hmm. trying to disprove. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, I... The sort of a little bit of the unique experience of like my own journey coming into this was like not growing up in the church, you know, have sort of this radical sense of self-awareness as a teenager, which leads me to all kinds of questions and seeing through everything I'm doing and sort of seeing through all the illusions I have, even at 17 of like, what am I really doing here? What are we doing here? You know, I have this spontaneous awakening moment with God at 18, changed my life. A few years later, my first experience around a lot of Christians was in a Bible college. You know, I tell this story many different ways because I've had many different things I could say from that experience. But one of them was the first class I took was like, I don't even know, it was like Christian discipliners supposed to is their version of a spiritual formation course, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. And I remember going through that whole semester being like, never once did we talk about self-awareness. And my whole journey was self-awareness deep enough to where I discovered God, you know, and what the truth of myself and all that. So I was like, how are you going to expect all these kids? And I was a kid at the time too, but I'm like, how are you going to expect all these kids to transform that which they are unaware needs to be transformed? Like more information from the Bible doesn't give them more access to what's in their shadow and what's getting in the way and the unprocessed wounds and all that, you know? So I always just immediately thought that. And when I think about specifically with what I think are some really magical ways almost of seeing how change works, you know, it's, I remember hearing Richard Rohr once talking about, about like intercessory prayer. He's like, I guess if God gets enough, will you heal my grandmas? He's finally going to listen. You know, like, do you just, how many, like, how does that work? And I remember when I was 20-ish, I was at a huge mega church in, in Los Angeles at the time, pretty classic low church, highly Pentecostal, like even TBN-ish to a degree, you know, I didn't know it at the time. But I was like, this is cool, but there's also a little something weird happening. I don't have the language yet to name it, but I'm a little uncomfortable here. And the pastor does this altar call. 
I tell people, I used to be amazed. I'm like, man, they get like 400 people at an altar call. And my mind was blown until after three weeks, I was like, oh wait, it's the same 400 people every week, you know? But the pastor was like saying something about anxiety, you know, depression, anxiety. And, you know, people raised their hand and he said, you know, like in Jesus's name, this is gone right now. And I remember just looking at people being like, that is not how that works. If only. Like, if, if, <laughs> I wish for, for the people I'm looking at right. and the vulnerability and the, the desperation for hope. And that's not a judgment. That's real people. You know, we all want that. I'm like, I wish it was like that, but it's not. And I remember looking at this young girl just and thinking in the moment, what happens when she goes home today and believes you? And she feels good for six hours. And she, she's convinced herself from what you said as an authority that this is gone. What happens when that night or the next day something triggers it and she's anxious and worried and it's either anger, depressed, whatever's happening in her life. I'm like, what is she's going to think? Is it me? But he said this. And I just thought that was always, always like, even at 20, I'm like, that's just irresponsible. That's so dangerous what this guy is saying to all these people in that moment. Now, that was a bit of a rant, but I'm coming back to this moment right now. A few months ago, I forget when it was with our church, I was talking about the reality of spiritual bypassing. You know how the church, church leadership, pastors, clergy sort of want to bypass the sidestepping emotions, you know, offering shallow platitudes in the way of confronting the real complexity and depth of what a journey towards health and transformation is like, especially for people who are wrestling with how do I name this mental health struggle? Why, why has that reality of bypassing, why is it so prevalent in churches? And I asked, cause I read in an interview you did where you said, which to some people might sound harsh, but I, I agree with you where you said right now, the average church is not a safe place. It's not a helpful place. It's not a healing place, but it has all the ingredients to be, right? We can call upon the best of our traditions to do that. Can you say something about the bypassing? Why would a church, if it's doing things like that, not be a safe place? And what is hard about holding that space, do you think, for churches, for people to be there? Well, I think that's it, right? It's hard. It's hard to sit with people in their pain. It's mm. uncomfortable. It's difficult. That's why we're not all trained therapists. Right? It's not, mm. it's not mm. easy. Um, mm. I think some of it has to do with that a lot of religious leaders don't have the kind of therapeutic assistance they need. Mm. Right. Um, as I said, it'd be great if everyone was in therapy. But I think that people mm. who are in helping professions especially need to be in therapy. People mm. who are holding the confidences of others especially need to be in therapy. Mm. Not because you're so, crazy, so. but because it's hard. Right? It's just challenging and you need a safe place. You need a place where you can, I think the language I've used before is walk up in there, lose your mind and still walk out with your dignity. Right. Mm, and so, so and I, those places exist. I have found them, but I've also mm. been in places that strip you of your dignity. Right. And mm. that make you feel worse and less wow. than and unspiritual um, and sinful because you're hurting and that is wrong. And so I think mm. the reason more places aren't is they don't know how I've, mm. I've never met a religious leader with poor intentions, even those I have mm. very big theological disagreements with. I don't think anyone's like, how can we hurt the people, right? Nobody's mm. thinking about <laughs> <laughs> Tuesday meeting, 9 a.m. <laughs> what do we do this week to hurt the people? <laughs> right, nobody's doing that. Everyone, everyone I've met it has a heart in the right place. Sometimes yeah, people don't so have good. the support, the information, um, or the resources to for their own lives, let alone to give to others, to say this is a place where you can be safe because they don't feel safe. Um, in whatever structure they might be in, whatever context they might be in. They haven't dealt with their baggage. We all have baggage, but we should at least have opened it up, cataloged it, you know, know what's there um, and which one's TSA is going to flag, right? We, so if you haven't done that, you don't know what to do with someone else's. And so I think a lot of it has to do with the assistance and resources that we need as religious leaders. Um, because I think that once you open it, just like that altar call had 400 people, once you give the space for people to, to say we care about you and healing you, 
then people will take it. But you also have to be honest and say, and it takes some time and you'll need some guidance and you'll need some help. And we're not going to abandon you because you haven't figured it out by next Sunday. We'll still be here. It's a longer process. And to sit with that and discomfort and questioning and anger and all the real emotions that go along with healing, it's not easy. It doesn't preach well. You can't always celebrate it at the end. You can't always mm. hoop it on the cross, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not easy. Mm, yeah, that's so good. What you know? Oftentimes, I think pastorally as well. I think it's hard for pastors to allow people to be fully human. I think it's hard for clergy to let people be hurting to let people be unfinished, which, which we all are at all, all times that never stops, you know, right. that's the little weird irony of it. But I also think specifically for pastors, it's easy to personalize where other people are. You know, it's easy to personalize. Well, if that person's hurting or if that person made another self-destructive decision, or if that person chose this, the unconsciously the pastor feels almost responsible to me. That's a lack of like differentiation and boundaries. That's a different conversation, but I think sometimes clergy feel like they, they feel personally responsible in an unhealthy way where it reflects poorly on them. So it's like, you're hurting. That means I'm not like doing my job to tie it all together. Therefore I'm bad. Right. That thing after the thing, I'm like, no, they're people and they're on their way. And you are a part of, flowing with the spirit to invite them into the while embracing the madness of the reality of you have no control over what they do that's pastoring and why it's like so crazy parenting kids all that stuff it, right? you know, i mean savior complex is very high in ministry right oh, <laughs> you man. feel like we have to save people um mm. and not only is that god's job um, but mm. you know we can't but it's it's an impulse like i said in parenting like you think that child mm. reflects on you Right. Mm. Um, I mean, how many thoughts times have I thought that as a parent? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I'm like, oh, not really. Not not like yeah. I not like I feel, right? Mm, yeah. So that's what I said. It's a constant work. Like it's, it's we're all in process, we're all unfinished, we're all getting it wrong, trying to get it right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we're coming up to almost an hour. Even with that said, what what was for one example of when someone in the church or a church was helpful and served you well in your journey to see that? Um, Well, I do write about it a little bit in Bipolar Faith. So I'll use that example. Um, There was a time when I was in just deep suffering and someone gave it all away. And I went Mm. to this church. They had a Saturday evening service. And I went and I sat there and I have no idea what they preached about or what Mm. happened. But I remember just kind of going through the motions and it was the first time I'd ever been to this church. So it wasn't like I knew anybody there. And then after the church service ended, I was praying at kind of the corollary to an altar, like the front of the church mm. was kind of like mm. an altar. And I just cried and cried and cried mm. and cried. Everybody left. Nobody talked to me. Nobody asked me anything. Probably for like an hour, maybe <laughs> at least 30 mm. minutes. And, you know, the pastor just stayed and sat by the door until I was done and just kept the church open. And there wasn't a rush for anything else. And, you know, afterwards introduced himself and said, are you okay? And I said, I'm okay. Mm. Clearly I was not okay. Right. (laughs) But, but knew like, well, this is somebody who at least is bringing this to my church and I'm going to stay here Mm. and let her go through whatever process she needs to go Mm. through. And I went back to that church, not the next Sunday, many months later. And it was a church I loved to be at and ended up becoming a staff minister at. Wow. Because it was a church that was okay with letting people walk up in there, lose their mind and still walk out with their dignity. Oh my gosh. That's so good. It's such a fascinating thing to think them letting you not be okay is what made it okay. You know what I mean? 
Like it's just a weird, like you think you need to come in and fix, but actually resisting, which is usually our own like ego impulse to do that for our own reasons. Cause we can't hold that space, but the allowing of people to not be okay all of a sudden creates the atmosphere. We're like, obviously I have issues, but I am okay now. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it's so just I'm a little a bit problem. better at least, <laughs> yeah. right? A, a little bit better than I was before I came. And that was that, it wasn't like that only happened to me, right? That was the ethos mm. of that community. Love it. I thought you were going to say you went down, cried in the front, and all of a sudden you woke up the next morning and the janitor was like vacuuming. <laughs> Excuse me, miss. I know you is wonderful yet a moment, but. <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> As we, you know, we probably have like five minutes left. We, you know, we have this hopeful vision of one day this is all moved with this is all moving towards healing and towards oneness and towards wholeness right as followers of jesus right we're looking forward to those poetic visions and revelation of every tear will be wiped away there'll be no more injustice no more war all these amazing visions of really like hey this is somehow all moving towards okayness right that's my simplest simple this is we can hope you know, and believe this is where things are heading. But in a more concrete way, what for you during a time when I think it is hard for some people to have hope, like 2020 and people think 2021 was magically going to like wipe away all of 2020. And you're like, well, not quite. We still have a long way <laughs> to go. Quite. Yeah. And what are during that time, whether it's rituals, relationships, anything, what are some of the concrete things that bring you hope and have helped ground you during this time? Oh, wow. That's actually a hard question because it's been a challenging time for me. Like it has been for so many other people. And I know the challenges come to mind much faster, right? Than mm. the sources of hope. I would say for me, the sources of hope have been the communities I found online, right? Because mm, I can't be wow. with my communities in person. Um, not safely, so I haven't. And, you know, that I have an international community of other moms, right, who are also mm, professors. Wow. And sometimes we'll do a big Zoom call and we'll, people mm. from around the world will be on the call. And our kids are jumping around in the background, right? Mm. Or, and we're, you know, we, we have this kind of bond or a community and formed around reading Octavia Butler's book, books about Parable to Sower and Parable to Talents mm. and mm. what we're learning together about creativity and change and politics, right? Or, you know, other ways of trying to form community. Like, so right now, actually for the Lenten season, I'm leading a community uh, for anyone who's interested. <laughs> in I was joining. going to finish. I was going to finish right after this uh, with this. You see that right there. Please go ahead. I was going right. to make sure we let people know. Yeah, thank you. Uh, leading a community of people who want to just be honest about how hard things are, right? About depression, about sadness, about grief, all of which just live at least with me and I know with so many others um, and bring that before our faith life and, mm. you know, just kind of keep it real and mm. say, sometimes it sucks. Sometimes I don't feel like there's hope. Sometimes I'm not feeling super holy and that's really okay. And that doesn't mean I don't still have a spirituality that matters. So mm. I'm doing what I'm calling a 40 day faith journey mm. uh, and people can join me at um, bit.ly b-i-t dot l-y slash 40 the number day faith mm. so you can find it there you can also go to my website and hit any green button and you can get to mm. it as well and you know that's a community i'm looking forward to sharing with really um about this journey of we're all just kind of wrestling with it together mm. yeah that's i wanted to make sure we ended with that for people to be able to find that. So that is the 40 days of Lent. Yes. It's the 40 days of Lent. Oh, and my website, of course, is MonicaAColeman.com. Yeah. MonicaAColeman.com. And also Monica, for a lot of people listening, you could find her on Instagram at Rev Dr. Monica. So you could just type in Monica Coleman in the search and her, her uh, handle will pop up Rev Dr. Monica. You could find it through there. And I just wanted to give people that resource because during Lent, which crazy enough as a clergy person, I'm like, damn, babe, that's like in 10 days or like, it's like, so like the Wednesday, like, like Ash Wednesday. I just saw it on a calendar. Like, Have you seen that meme with Bernie inside the king cake? Anyway, 
Uh-uh, I haven't. I've seen a ton, though, but no, I haven't seen that one yet. Um, but yeah, I think that would be a great resource for people who are listening in and are drawn into some of Dr. Coleman's story and want to be a part of something meaningful, looking for community, looking for honesty, looking for that solidarity during this crazy, you know, time where there is a lot of struggle, but we're still holding on to hope. So if you're interested, check that out. I would encourage everybody to do that. And Dr. Coleman, so grateful that you came on. You're skipping the queue. This is, this is going to be the next one this Monday because I'm so excited for people to hear it. So once again, I'm so grateful for you taking this time and also for all of the unique ways in which your voice and contribution has reverberated, even out here all the way to Hawaii and to our church, Imagine, that my wife and I have are still leading through this time. So, so thankful for you. Thank you for your conversation and for the intentional, beautiful ministry that you have. Mm, Appreciate it. Thank you so much.